welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we just see this uh, beautiful vision of what you'd have us to be, your church, your bride, you, how you'd have us to live in this world. And we pray, Lord, that tonight as we are in your word and dwelling on the things that you have here for us. We pray, Lord, that you'd make it a reality more and more. That we'd actually see ourselves become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And that as a body, we would see ourselves more unified, more stabilized in the faith, and even more complete as we measure up more and more as a body to what you would have us to be. And we just thank you for your grace in it, Lord, your patience and your mercy. That you love us. And you're patient with us as we grow. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So my name is Eric Cobb. I'm thankful you guys are here. We're in Ephesians. Um, we're going to mostly be in verses 7 through 16. And uh, this Sunday is an important Sunday. This is Ascension Sunday. So six weeks after Easter is Ascension. So Jesus, having died and been raised on Sunday, Easter Sunday, 40 days, he spent showing himself to be alive and well. A lot of times we miss that part. We think he just resurrected and Easter's over and we're on to Christmas again, you know. But more things happened. <laughs> so there was a 40-day period that he was on earth and he showed himself to be alive and well. And, um, and that's what we celebrate now. Now, uh, Thursday was the actual anniversary, but we just move it on to Sunday for our gathering. In Acts 1, verse 3, it describes what happened. It says, Jesus presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing over 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you had heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come to him, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, Behold, there were two men standing there in white robes, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come the same way as you saw him leave. I love that question. The angels are like, why are you looking up? As if this happens every day. You know, every day you're talking to somebody, and all of a sudden they just go up. And it's, it sounds very non-dramatic. You know, it's just, he just went up. Um, in children's ministry, if your kids are in there, uh, Linda made this amazing craft, and she showed it to me, and I thought, this could help us. So it works like this. And the, the cool thing about this is how many simple parts this has. This is just like an elegant work. But anyway, you pull it, and he just went up from their sight and disappeared in the clouds. Is that the most amazing thing? Do you want me to do it again? No, that's all you get. If your kids have one, you can really enjoy that. But we look at this in Acts and we wonder, what's this about? This is kind of a strange way for him to leave. We expect like lightning. We expect laser beams. We expect a, a chariot of fire, you know, like to just go up like that is a strange thing. What does it all mean? Well, the ascension means that Jesus is right now reigning in heaven as king of the universe, which is incredibly good news. 
And I know that the book of Acts, it doesn't look like much. I mean, it's unusual, but there's not real flashy. If we could see it from the other side, from heaven's side, it would look like Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, it shows the other side of the ascension. What it looked like is Jesus went through the clouds and came out the other end into heaven. It says this, I saw in a night vision and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of day and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Amazing. Would have been quite a show on the other side. The amazing parade of him coming back into heaven to take his throne. The ascension tells us that Jesus is on his throne in heaven. And like I said, that's very, very good news. Okay. In the ancient times, the word gospel, it means good news, but it was used in a Roman context too. When there'd be a new emperor that would go and be enthroned, they would put out the good news of this new emperor, the gospel of this new emperor. And we have the very best gospel, which is that the king of the universe is Jesus Christ. And so no matter who's ruling in an earthly stage or anything like that, Jesus is Lord over all. And that's part of the good news. As we share the gospel with people, that's a part of the good news, that Jesus is indeed Lord of all. And that he will come someday and he will make all things new. He's going to come down, bring his kingdom, and he's going to make this place his perfect kingdom and his rule will have no end. Now, Ephesians 4, you wonder, okay, how does this all connect? Ephesians 4 tells us something that happened when Jesus was ascended. And what Ephesians 4 tells us, specifically in verse 8, is that when Jesus ascended up into heaven, one of the consequences of that is he showered his people with the Holy Spirit and with spiritual gifts. So that's what we see in verse 7. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean? But that he descended in the lowest region, the earth. He who descended is the one who has ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul here is quoting Psalm 68. It's a really cool image in Psalm 68. It's the image of a king returning from victory in battle. And as he's marching through the capital city to go up to his throne, he's throwing gifts to his people, the spoils of war. Okay, So he's king marching up. He's won a great victory. He's coming through the streets of the capital. He's going up to his throne. He's got all these captives behind him that he's captured, probably the king of the other uh, group, the other country. And he's got these spoils of war and he's throwing them down to his people. He's giving the gifts to men. In the same way, Jesus is ascended from his victory in battle as well. Jesus, it says, descended. He's descended to the lowest parts. He became a man. He dies on a cross for us in humiliation and pain to bear away our sins. But the cross, guys, was not Jesus' defeat. You know, if you watch the Passion of the Christ movie or something like that, you might think, you know, is this a defeat? Is this the end? What's going on here? And if you were there watching Jesus be crucified, this is what the Romans did to kind of the scum of the earth, people that they wanted to humiliate, groups that they wanted to end. They would say, here's your leader. He can't do anything. He's powerless. It's defeat. But guys, it wasn't Jesus's defeat. It was Jesus's way of victory over sin and death and the devil. He actually won his victory on the cross. And three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. Forty days later, he ascends to his throne. Jesus is the triumphant king of Psalm 68, marching through the streets of heaven, right? With his captives behind him, throwing out the spoils of victory all over the place. And those fell all the way down to the earth 
on Pentecost to shower his people with the Holy Spirit and his gifts. Isn't that cool? Isn't that the coolest image? I love that Psalm 68 image. He's like, this is what it's like. This is how we receive the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. It was him ascending and he's showering his people and it's all coming down. It reminds me of um, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It reminds me of when Aslan defeated the witch and Father Christmas comes and he's got gifts for the children. And each child gets something. Peter gets a sword and a, and a shield. Susan gets a bow and an arrow. Lucy gets a healing potion. These are all things that they can use in the mission that they have going forward from here. And that's what Jesus did with us. Is he, he rains down the Holy Spirit and all the gifts that we're able to use in the mission that he has for us. They're the spoils of his victory. And um, in the ascension, we have... It, it's just such a great thing because in the ascension, we have our man, Jesus, our representative in heaven, and he touches down on his throne in heaven. And then 10 days later, there's the sonic boom of Pentecost. The spirit comes and the gifts are everywhere and things are crazy. And we'll talk about that next week. It's so cool. I mean, you just imagine. It's like he ascends in a very non-dramatic way from this side. And then it's like, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. 10 days later, boom, his victory is shown in the giving of the spirit and the gifts. Ascension Sunday, guys, reminds us that Jesus is right now reigning in heaven to empower us as church to live here on earth. He's actually reigning over the entire universe for the sake of the church, for the sake of you guys. Ephesians 1.20 says that. It says that the Father, God the Father, seated Jesus, Ephesians 1.20, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come, that he would put all things under his feet and gave him, gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's the king of the entire universe and he's ruling especially for us, regular people sitting here. The church, his people, his people gathered all over the world. It says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the head over all things for the benefit of the church. One thing I want to remind you guys is, is that God cares more about the church than anything else on earth. Okay? God cares about the church. I'm talking about the community of saints, gathered community of saints, the church. He cares more about the church than anything else on earth, by far. It's his prize, it's the apple of his eye, it's the reason he's ruling. He's ruling for us to bless and help us. And one thing I want to challenge you guys on is how strangely easy it is to not care very much about the thing God cares most about. Isn't it so easy, especially right now, 21st century, Southern Californians, isn't it so easy for us to be half-hearted about the church? Right? It's so easy right now. I feel it too. You know that it almost feels like something you could dispense with, something that you could just give half your heart to or half your time. And I know this might be convicting for some of you, but guys, no one would take their kids half the time to practices and games. Right? No one would go half the time to work. Very few people will even watch half a Netflix series. Okay? And yet we will give ourselves half the time to God's church. We'll give half our heart. And so that's just a reminder, you guys, that God loves the church. This is the most important thing that he has going here. And we need to be all in for it. We need to not be half-hearted about the thing that God cares most about. So God's put Jesus as head over the church. Christ's dominion, guys, over the universe is for the benefit of the church. Take a look at Matthew 28, 18. Jesus says this, very familiar passage. Maybe you don't even need to turn there. Jesus said, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Do you see the logic there? He's been made king over the universe so that he can send his people out. The ascension reminds us, guys, that Jesus is right now reigning for the help of the church. And one of the ways he helps us is in this text, which is by sending the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit to help us on mission. Look at verse 7. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Those graces there are spiritual gifts. We think grace was given in different measures. He's not talking about saving faith, right? They're saving uh, grace. We're all saved the same. But different measures of God's grace in the gifts were given. Every single Christian has probably multiple spiritual gifts, ways in which the Holy Spirit empowers them to serve Jesus's mission on the earth. Every one of us has that. And I know some of you are like, well, not me or not a very good one. That's not the case, okay? We all have this. This is a gift of the ascended Jesus is to give us all gifts. And we're going to look next week, Pentecost Sunday, at specific gifts and kind of trying to discern which ones God has for us. But he really what he does in this text is he wants to talk to us about what are they for. Before you get all caught up in which ones you have, it's good to look at what are they for. And that's what this text talks to us about. And it starts with the leaders. Take a look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. The first thing he gave, apostles and prophets. So these are the foundational figures, right, for the church. These are the, the people from whom we received God's very words, the apostles and prophets. And, and the whole church grows out of the written word of God that's been deposited by those people. You know, people ask whether there are apostles today. I don't believe there are apostles today. The authority of the apostles lives on in their words that they wrote down. We have God's very words, and the church grows out of the application of this word. Then we have, amen, and we have uh, evangelists. Now, what are evangelists? Evangelists take that word, and they give that word to people that don't currently know Jesus. These are people that are particularly gifted in talking to people that don't know Jesus and sharing God's word in a way they don't understand, and God often works through them to save people. And then you got pastors. Uh, Pastors are also called elders, overseers in Scripture. Each one of those words means something different. So elder points out the fact that uh, pastors are to be mature and be examples. Overseer, episkopos, is a word that means that they, they watch things. They look, they direct, they keep watch, they manage. And then pastor in this text is the same word as shepherd. And so it has the picture of that they care for the people and protect them. And so those are pastors. And the New Testament always speaks of churches as having more than one. A plurality of elders or pastors that equally have authority over the church. That's the way we govern our church. Guys, these are gifts from God. You know, the leaders of the church are gifts from God. Teachers. All pastors teach, but not all teachers are pastors. So we have people in our midst that teach the Bible. They may not be officially pastors, but they teach God's word. All pastors teach, but not all teachers pastor. Teachers show us how to apply and bring God's word to bear on our lives. So you can see that all this is about the word, right? And the apostles and prophets give the word. The evangelists are spreading the word. The the pastors and teachers are teaching the word. And you might assume, guys, and I think I had this point of view, that those leaders are the ones that do the real ministry of the church. If you guys come from a background, like they do the real ministry. So pastors, teachers, evangelists, these are the people that do the real ministry. The rest of us are just here to support it, show up, to give to it, things like that. 
And that's probably been the most common way of looking at the church for like 2,000 years, sadly, right? That the leaders of the church are the ones that do the real ministry. But guys, God did not give evangelists, pastors, and teachers to do the ministry of the church. Take a look at it. Take a look at verse 11. It says, And he gave apostles and prophets and teachers and shepherds shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What do they do? What do pastors and teachers and evangelists do? They equip the saints for the work of ministry. The evangelist one's interesting, huh? Because the evangelist, you're thinking, well, that one definitely does all the evangelism. Apparently not. Apparently the evangelists are also to equip us for the work of ministry. And so pastors, teachers, people that are leading the church are given by God to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You say, well, what are saints? Well, if you're from a kind of Catholic background, you might think of saints as a particular powerfully, you know, at work people in church history, people that were especially used by God. That's not the way the New Testament uses saints. Saint means holy one or set apart, and it refers to every Christian. Okay? You might be like, I ain't no saint, but you are. Okay? And so if if you are a Christian, you are a saint. You say, well, I don't live up to that. Well, you know, we can work on that. Okay? But you're a saint. You're a saint. You are a chosen, set-apart, holy one to God. You're a saint. And so what the ascended Christ has given the leaders of the church for is to equip you to do the ministry of the church. To equip you to do the ministry of the church. I find this totally exciting. From the moment I learned this many, many years ago, I found this totally exciting. I found it totally exciting that I'm not called to be a spectator. That I'm not called to just support something. That I'm actually called to ministry. You sometimes hear people do that, especially young people. They'll be like, hey, you know, I think I might be called to ministry. You know what you can tell them? You are. And they'll be like, do you think so? I know you are. How do you know? All Christians are called to ministry. You are called to ministry. We're all called to ministry as Christians. And guys, this is so much more exciting than like a consumeristic church model, right? A consumeristic church model where people come and they're kind of customers of the church. The church has religious services for them to purchase or to give towards. Guys, that is not the picture of the New Testament church. It's not consumeristic. The church was never designed to make customers. It was designed to make ministers. Like we could have on our org chart, you know, you get pastor and all this, and you have ministers in all your names. You guys are the ministers of the church. I just find this totally exciting because some people see the church as a theater and you come and you, you watch a performance, right? And you leave and, and you can kind of tell that in some places. And some people see the church as a marketplace where you come and, and, and you buy religious services. But guys, biblically, the church is a family. And if it's a family, then everybody has a part to play. I don't know about your home, but kids, me, we can't act like customers in our own home, right? Get around dinner, go to clean up, leave a tip and go to your room, right? No, you're a part of this. If you didn't make the meal, then you're doing the cleaning or something like that, right? If it's a family, then everybody has a part. Guys, this is your call to ministry. This text is your personal call to ministry. And people are like, I don't know if I've ever felt a call. I don't know if you ever spoke to me. You were called right now. If you weren't aware of it, now here it is. It's right in this text. You're called to ministry. Guys, you're called to adventure, okay? This is a call to adventure. This is a call to join Jesus's band of disciples and follow him on mission. This is completely exciting. Okay, this is something you want to give your whole life to. If the ascended Jesus, King Jesus, has showered you with spiritual gifts and he's given you leaders to equip you, what does your ministry look like? Well, this text, I see three things, of course. There's three. There's three things that I see us using our gifts to minister. And the first thing, well, let me give it to you right in the beginning. It's to unify us. 
It's to complete us, and it's to stabilize us. Firstly, it's to unify us. Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. I just love all that language. I just love the attaining and and everything. It's beautiful. This is God's plan for the church, that we would become more and more unified. And I don't know what kind of church background you've been a part of, but let me assure you that unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that like you stamp out and everybody's going to look the same, they're going to wear the same clothes, they're going to kind of talk the same. That's not what it's about. And I know that because the Ephesians image here is of a body. And a body's made up of all different kinds of cells and tissues and organs and all these things, right? Uniformity in a body is actually deadly. That's what cancer is. Cancer is a cell reproducing itself, growing masses of all the same cells. Uh, Uniformity is death to the body. Diversity, though, is a beautiful thing. So diversity, working together, different gifts on mission. And what's really interesting in this text is that we actually already have unity. Look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one calling, one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is Lord over all and in all. You're already one, okay? And I have a diagram for this. Yeah, you're like, oh, good. Don't get too excited. We'll see. Okay, so I'm going to draw the Trinity, okay? Father, Son, Holy Spirit in heaven. Here's you. You're one of these stick people with freakishly long... You want bigger? You know, if I, if I do that, it's going to smear. It's going to be a mess. You're right, though. Thank you, Eric. You're right. You're doing your part in the body right now. Because <laughs> I do. I always write really small here, and I write too fast, and I don't like to sit and enjoy it and really dig in like Bob Ross. Okay, so Jesus has ascended into heaven, right? Ten days later, he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell within us right? Which links us to Jesus and the Father, right? We're linked by the Holy Spirit. And if that's you, the person next to you, also indwelt by the Holy Spirit, linked to the Son and the Father by the Spirit, and everyone in this room, right? Every Christian, right? And so we have a unity in the Holy Spirit. So there's this thing, it's in the Apostles' Creed, called the communion of saints. That's what it is. Communion of saints is the fact that we have union with Christ through the Holy Spirit And since we all have that union, it's a communion, right? Where we commune with each other through the Holy Spirit. So there's a real unity that's already here. Interesting thing, though, in the text, it says that that unity, even though we have it, has to be, verse 3, maintained. It says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we have to eagerly maintain it. It also says we have to attain it. Look at verse 13. It says, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So while we are already united in the Spirit together, we have a real unity that's unbreakable in the Holy Spirit. We have to actually live in such a way that that unity becomes more and more visible, right? It becomes more and more seen, okay? Because I don't know about you, but I've been in church environments where we did not let the unity of the Spirit be seen. Anybody else? Okay, we've all done that. Let's not do that again. That went very badly. I think you guys all have bad memories about it. But what we want to do is is we want to live out the unity we already have. So unity in Christ with other believers is not something you have to establish or make. It's already there. It's something you have to that you have to live out. We have to live it out. And it's tricky, right? It's tricky because we're very different people. Okay, that's one of the things I learned last year. We're very different people. Like real different, okay? 
Um, we're different in our temperaments. We're different in our passions. We're different in our, we have theological differences, you know, even in this body, which is fine and great. We have different gifts. If you look at verse seven, it says, but grace was given to each one. What he's introducing there is like, we have this unity, but we also have different gifts. Different gifts can make things rough between people too. Because if you have a certain gift, you have a certain passion. And that passion might rub against mine, you know? You might be really passionate, mercy person, really passionate about, you know, the homeless people or something like that. And you might have another person here, they're passionate about teaching and they don't really see a point in it. And you can have tension based on gifting, based on passions. How do we focus? How do we focus our unity? Look at verse 13. It says, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That Where we find our unity, guys, is in the core of Jesus and the gospel. If we keep the center of our church about Jesus and the gospel, then we can have differences on all kinds of things, but we've got that core that holds us together. And that doesn't mean we don't talk about controversial issues and really kind of hammer things out. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a conversation with another believer, and it's just starting to get interesting because you're starting to kind of debate something that's kind of deep and maybe maybe questionable, like, hey, you know, what do you believe on this? And the other guy goes, says something like, well, that's not a salvation issue, which is a polite way of saying, like, I don't want to talk anymore just when it's getting good, right? We don't have to do that, guys. We can discuss and debate controversial things, and we can actually build our unity in Christ if Christ and the gospel are our unity. Christ and the gospel are unity. We can have differences on eschatology and all kinds of different things out there, and we can still be bound together. Romans 9 is coming, by the way. Romans 9 is not controversy at all, okay? <laughs> Romans 9 is coming. We, like, slowed the train down. It's like, it's like the roller coaster ride. It goes clink, 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 And I'm, when I preach Romans 9, I'm going to preach it in all of its alien offensiveness and just let you deal with it. I'm just going to be like, here it is. Have fun. I'm not going to be like, hey, guys, I know what this looks like, but it's not. You know, like, we're not going to do any of that. I'm just going to go, here it is. And you're like, whoa, what just happened? I'm like, hey, Paul did it, right? <laughs> and it'll be fine because it won't be the first time and it won't be the last time that we talked about controversial things. You guys rode with me through Revelation, book of Revelation. There were a lot of things I brought out there that you were like, this is not what I've heard before. But guys, our unity runs deeper than that. Our unity is built around Christ and the gospel. Let me just ask you this. Are you using your gifts right now to unify the people in this room around Christ and the gospel? This is not theoretical. They're actually right here. Look around. Look at them all. Not just the one you came with. Okay? These are the people. These are the people that you're called to help build unity around Christ and the gospel. And we need that from you. We desperately need that from you. Secondly, you're called to complete us. You're called to complete us. Take a look at verse 13. It says, To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Guys, we are called to be a church together to act as Jesus' body on earth, okay? The church is supposed to be the physical representation of who Christ is in the world. No pressure. Does that sound like a big task? We're called to be the physical presence of Christ on the earth. We're called to be the people that the world can look to to see what Jesus is like. This is scary, okay? This is a high calling. And that's why we need everybody's gifts, right? No one here does that the way it needs to be done. That's why we need everyone's gifts. We need a diversity of gifts. And like when verse 16 says, when every member is using their spiritual gifts, then the world sees through the church what Christ is like. I did a craft for kids a couple of years ago. I did children's ministry. 
And um, one of the things I did for them, we were talking about spiritual gifts and all of us using our gifts. And I took a picture of Jesus, uh, not a real one, you know, like a painting, okay? And I cut it up and I made it into a puzzle. And I handed each one of them one of the pieces, right? So each one had a puzzle piece. And then we put it together, together. And we just talked about how their pieces don't look that much like Jesus. But when we all come together and we all bring our gifts and we're united and we actually show the world what Christ is like. And I, I think that one of the common things in our culture today among Christians is that we don't want to put our peace in. You know, we look at the picture, it doesn't look that much like Jesus. And we're like, you know what, I'll put mine in when that looks like Jesus. You ever feel that way towards the church? You're like, it, it's kind of a muddled picture. I don't want to get involved. When it looks like Jesus, I will put my peace in. It doesn't work that way, guys. Do this piece. What is this? It's a little bit of mouth. And maybe this is to not violate a command. Why I did it this way. And um, maybe a little bit of beard. Okay. And the thing is, is that we will not look like Christ until all the people in our church put their gift in. Right. The other thing, too, is like if you're sitting back there and you're like, I'm not doing it and you're showing the world this good luck. okay? good luck. None of us look enough like Jesus on our own. It's like, hey, I, you know, just and they're like, I don't know what that is. Right. We should be saying to the world, hey, don't look just at me. I'm just a piece. The church is where you find Christ as we all bring our gifts together. So if there's something you see in our church that's missing, something that you think we really need to do to display Christ in the world, what that probably is, is it's your gifting. And what that probably is, is it's a calling. And so please tell us about it. And you know what I'm going to say? Oh, would you like to do that? I'm not going to do that to put you off. I'm going to say, hey, I know a couple other people that would be into that. Let's get them together. Let's band together. That's the way it works. The ministry is yours. And so you've got in your bulletin here, yeah, we have bulletins now. You have a bunch of ways to connect here. You have ministry leaders. If there's one of those sections where you would be interested in using your gift, you can text one of those ministry leaders. If we're not doing something, though, and you, I mean, you could be on there. Well, you could have a homeless ministry. You could have a ministry to the elderly. You could have all sorts of ministries that we could do here. And we would be excited to actually promote that. So are you using your gift to connect the people in this church to make the world see a more complete picture of Jesus? And I want to just say to you kids, kids, are you kids, hey kids, hey, you're a super important part of this church and your piece is valuable. When other kids come and they come to church and you're welcoming them and you're saying hi to them and you're inviting your friends and stuff like that, you are an absolutely important piece of this church. And so we're super, super thankful for you guys. So unite us, complete us. Last one, steady us. We need steadying. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by the human cunning and craftiness of deceitful scheming. Okay, guys, we live in turbulent times, yes? We live in turbulent times, or at least it seems that way. I think they really are. It's so easy to be tossed to and fro by the waves. Isn't this a cool image? It's like you're out in the sea and you're holding on to a piece of wood or something and there's this storm and it's tossing you back and forth. That's what we're seeing in our culture right now, right? There seems to be a different topic each week that I'm supposed to be extremely passionate about and have a very good solution for, okay? I don't know what it is this week. Do you guys know? What, what, what am I supposed to be super angry about, scared, and have the solution for? And maybe post it on social media so I can get lots of approval that I have solved this problem. 
Maybe it's the Israel-Palestinian thing. Is that something I should have like a totally solid point of view on and know who's right and who's wrong and what we need to do? Yeah, that's probably what I need. Well, I'm a little late in the week. Maybe I'll just wait for the next one, you know, and catch that train. But we live in turbulent times, guys. And our culture is trying through that turbulence to disciple us. They're trying to do something to us. Remember last week with the Babylonian exile, they took the Jewish leaders into exile and they tried to get them to become more and more Babylonian. And part of this tossing you back and forth is a process to try to teach you the things that the culture wants to teach you. They have doctrines too. Our world has doctrines. It has things that it wants you to believe and center your life around. Things that are counter to the Word of God. And they may sound secular or they may sound religious, but there's teachings. And it's so easy, guys, to go through the week and just be tossed back and forth and back and forth. And I just want to say to all of you here who are believers, we need you to stabilize us. That's what we need from you in your gifting. We need you to stabilize us. Look at verse 15. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. We need you to stabilize us. We need you to give us God's word. I mean, people come in here looking crazy sometimes, right? You're like, you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their conversation. They're shaken. They're tossed. They've been through it. We need you to stabilize us. We need you to stabilize us, it says, with the truth. This is truth. Know this. Be ready to use this. Be ready to give this to people here at this church when you come. It says to give us the truth in love, guys, because truth without love isn't real truth and love without truth isn't real love, right? It needs to be both. And we find that in Jesus, don't we? John, who knew Jesus best, he said that the word had become flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory, the glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. That Jesus was absolutely 100% both grace and truth. That's what we're looking. We're like, Jesus, I'm your disciple. Teach me how to be that. Teach me how to be love and truth. A different John, John Gerstner, who didn't actually see Jesus, said this about him. No one has ever yet discovered the word that Jesus ought to have said or the deed he ought to have done. That's a great way to start. No one has ever yet discovered the word Jesus ought to have said or the deed he ought to have done. Have you? Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he is always surprising you and taking your breath away. He is incomparably better than you could have imagined for yourself. Jesus is tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence. Jesus is holiness and unbending conviction without the slightest lack of approachability. Jesus is power without insensitivity, passion without prejudice. There is never a false step, never a jarring note. This is life at its highest. Amen? Jesus is perfect in both love and truth, and he'll teach us to do the same. So, question, are you using your gifts to speak the truth and love to people in this room? And do you notice when they come in and they don't look right? You can see it in their face. You can see it in their words. You can see it in the shake when they talk about you know, how things are going in the world. We need you to stabilize us. We need you to notice we need you to say, okay, I hear your concerns, but let me remind you that God is good, and God is in control, and God is wise, and God is powerful, God is love, and God is here, and he hears our prayers. And let me pray for you, let me give you some scripture, let me pray for you about how you can be a blessing in the place where God has you. And then we go out stabilized, right? We came in all tweaked, and we leave focused, and that's what happens in the church. Because the church is an amazing thing. 
is an amazing thing. We just don't realize how amazing God's gift of the church is. Look at verse 16. I'll end on this. It says, For whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See what it's saying there? This is a really amazing thing. So what it's saying there is, is that the church has a life of its own. It says when, when each part of the body is doing its part, that it builds itself up in love. This is not the way we normally think of church. We normally think of church as you got you hire the right people, and they do the right things, and they build it. It's like, no. What happens is, is when every member is doing their part, the church builds itself up in love when each part is working properly. And so no one gets burnt out because no one's trying to make something dead live because the church is alive. And the church is alive because the life of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is in you. And his spirit being in you and in all of us as we work together, it's Jesus' living body on earth. This is an amazing thing. It's not like any other institution or organization. It has a life of its own, Christ's life in you. And so, guys, we're going to be willing to give ourselves fully to Jesus' body on earth, this body, when we see that he gave his body for us, right? I want to just ask you tonight, if, have you received the gift of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood? We're going to take communion in just a little bit. But have you received the actual thing? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ's broken body and his shed blood? Guys, we're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus on earth when we see that his hands and feet were pierced for us. We love each other because he first loved us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you've not left here us here alone. You've not left us as orphans. You've come to us in the Holy Spirit. And we're never alone because your Spirit lives within us. God, the Holy Spirit, alive in us. And we're thankful, too, that we're not alone because you've left us each other. We don't just have your Spirit's manifestation in our life to keep us going, but we have it in one another. And we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to value each other more than we ever have before. That we would love your people in a way that's, that we've never known before. That you, Even as we take communion and as we worship, we pray, Lord, that you would stir in a love for your church, your people right here, that we have just never felt before. We pray, Lord, that you would give us your love for your people. We don't need you to stir up our love for them. We need your love infused through us. We need to experience how you feel about your people. Lord, and we pray that that love amongst each other would show the world the reality of your son's real coming, death, resurrection, and ascension. We pray that as they see how we love each other, they would know you're real. We want this so bad, Lord. We don't want to just waste our lives, just bide our time. Lord, we want to see your spirit work in a powerful way. We see you move us, make us new. Lord, reign through us, we pray. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much, Eric. Um, that was so good. Happy Ascension Sunday, right? Don't you guys love that? Love that passage. 
Verse 8, it, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Amen? Yeah, he gave gifts to us. And that's one of the things that we're reminded of as we celebrate communion. We have been the last few weeks looking at the different names that the New Testament gives to what we're going to do now in communion. And one of them is actually, I think it's the last one. I think I've exhausted all of them at this point, but one of them is the Lord's table. And there's, there's a unique connection to, to the ascension there in, in the calling what we're about to do the Lord's table. It's both a biblical and a traditional term, but if you were to time travel back into Greek and Roman culture, you might even go to a dinner that would have been kind of a memorial dinner to one of their gods, and it might have been called the table of Lord so-and-so. I don't know. I would need to brush up on my Greek and Roman uh, uh, history in order to to be able to fill in that so-and-so. So as the New Testament, or sorry, as the, the early church started calling this meal the Lord's table, it was a way of honoring the ascended Lord as Lord over all, right? The ascended Christ. And so what an honor it is for us now to come to that table. Amen? Considering, you know, who we are and our sin that the host had to die for, we, we are allowed to come to that table. And what a blessing that is. And as we gather around the Lord's table right now, um, I just want us to meditate on that truth that uh, the ascended Christ is present with us as we take communion right now. Here's how one author put it. I love this. It's really good. We really do encounter Christ in the bread and wine. We really do feast on him. To that we are nourished. And not just by having our memories jogged, our memories of the gospel truth, the ascended Christ may be absent in body, but he is present in spirit. The distance between the ascended Christ and ourselves is collapsed by the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's not Christ that comes down to us in the Lord's Supper. Rather, by the Spirit, we ascend to be with Christ in the Lord's table. Amen? Isn't that awesome? Isn't that such a wonderful thing to meditate on? Would you stand with me as we take communion together? In communion, we remember the body that was broken for us, the blood that was spilt on our behalf for our sin, to cover our sin. If you are with us tonight and if you're trusting in uh, the blood of Jesus to cover your sin, we invite you to take this with us. For you parents, for your kids, if they know and understand that, we love we would love for them to take communion with us. We would also love for them to get baptized too, by the way. If they are taking communion, please talk to us about baptism if they have not been baptized. And this is what uh, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. Let's pray. Father, uh, we just are so thankful to be able to uh, participate in your son's death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. Jesus, we know that you are here with us as we take these elements, Lord, you commune with us, and uh, we just want to acknowledge your presence here as we take it. We want to thank you for not only sacrificing yourself on our behalf, but also inviting us to your table, uh, to the Lord's table, to you, that the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We are a thankful people, and I pray that you would make us uh, a church that does display you, Lord. Help us to, to encourage and, and grow, um, encourage one another and grow into the image of, of uh, your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.